Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. This is episode 85 with my guest, Joelle Marie. Joelle is a dear friend of mine. She is the sweet partner of previous guest Rudy Caceres. And today on the show, she and I talk about feeling misunderstood. Uh, We talk about obsession and compulsion in OCD, the job of a peer support specialist, and living with autism spectrum disorder. We, of course, also talk about doggos and mental health, and we talk about sensory sensitivity and, and all sorts of stuff. Joelle is a wonderful feely human and is doing great work in peer support. Uh, before we get to this episode, episode 85, though, hey, I know a thing you can do. If you haven't left a review and rating for Yumi Empathy in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, please do. It takes a couple minutes. I would love to hear what you think of the show. Uh, five stars is generally my favorite number, but you speak from your heart. You be honest. That's all I want. Um, please go there and leave a review for the show. It's a free way to support the show. And I will read your new reviews here on the intro to episodes. So please do that. Also, I have a Patreon uh, page. It's at patreon.com slash Empathy. Lately, I haven't been sharing as much bonus material there, which I feel shame about. I'm putting that shame directly on my shoulders as uh, a good sensitive uh, person does. Uh, but I do post bonus content every once in a while. And uh, you can support the show uh, financially uh, for as little as 25 cents an episode. That's a dollar a month or more, uh, if you'd like. Uh, that, again, that's at patreon.com slash Empathy. And again, if you're not subscribed to this podcast, you can subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Google Podcasts, all of the above. So many places to subscribe. Make sure you subscribe so every Monday morning you get a brand new episode in your ear holes and in your heart holes. <laughs> Uh, hopefully you don't have too many holes in your heart, but you know, maybe, uh, you empathy can be a plug to, uh, you know, shove in there into your heart. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's getting gross. Anyways, I love you. Thank you for being here. Make sure to follow the show at you empathy on Instagram and Twitter. We also have a Facebook group, uh, go follow and enter that group. It's, uh, great and lovely. And it's at facebook.com slash groups slash you empathy. Okie dokie artichokies. It is now time for episode 85 with my friend Joelle Marie on autism, peer support, and OCD.
Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our neuroses, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others, to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight, so we can hand-in-hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm overjoyed to be back tinkering around in the Empathy Cave with peer specialists, mental health advocate, and the West Coast's more most avid dog snuggler, Joelle Marie. Hello, Joelle. Hi. <laughs> I kind of fumbled that last bit yeah, there. Yeah, that's, that's okay. I, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I fumble. <laughs> well, you and I are uh, really the leading dog snugglers of the West Coast. What did yeah, you say? I, I, feel, I feel like that is that is true. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a good thing that my puppy just loves being picked up and like kind of cuddled like a little kid because I, I would be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw recently how you just kind of pick her up and and she just kind of sits there calm collected (laughs) yeah Yeah, she i mean she's a she's a special pup she's a special sensitive pup and that's like just perfect for us i feel like yeah totally well thank you for being on you me empathy Mm -hmm. thank you yeah well uh let's let's do a little emotional check-in uh how how are you doing today how's your week been my week's been pretty good um I think, you know, I think I mentioned at one point, like I'm having some sleep issues, um, but that's kind of getting better slowly. And that's really, you know, um, as long as I'm feeling like super great, otherwise, like sleep doesn't really affect me, but I haven't been feeling like super great physically. Like I've had allergies and stuff. And so like, I'm kind of uh, batting around the sleep issue. So I've been a little anxious this week, to be honest. And like, uh, some OCD stuff is is getting to me because that's what happens when I don't get sleep. (laughs) Right. But, um, but other than that, you know, today I'm, I'm pretty okay. Okay. Yeah. Sleep is such a, I mean, (laughs) it can ruin you. Like go a couple of days where like, if I'm, if I go a couple of days where I'm not getting decent sleep, I am, I'm a wreck. Mm -hmm. Is the, I think I at some point you mentioned maybe the doggo being a contributor to your sleep issues. Is that still the case? So, so a little bit, but part of it also is that like, I'm not being as stern <laughs> about, oh, right. about the bed thing right? Um, as she really needs, to be honest. Like she really just wants love and like, like I will wake up and she'll be behind our heads and she'll have her head on my head. Like, yeah so which is really cute and if she manages to get there and do that and i'm sleeping i really don't care it's not like we shouldn't have dogs in the bed or shouldn't have dogs up near us yeah it's really a space issue so but what i've found is that if you know i get up to go to the bathroom and she's in my spot literally if i just pick her up and put her on the end of the bed it's fine because she's like asleep enough 
and I'm not telling her to get out of the room. So, so I think if I just do that, she kind of gets it. And actually last night when I came back, I I got up to go to the bathroom and I came back and she was in my spot and she kind of looks at me and then just got up and trotted to the end of the bed and settled down there. So she's kind of getting it. Okay. It's funny. (laughs) Like the, like I relate so much to the like wanting to just do whatever the dog wants, you know, like mm-hmm. to, to meet, just to give in to all of it. Like, you know, because, <laughs> yeah. because they have such short lives and I because know, yeah. they're so joyful causing and because, but like, you know, at a certain point, like the, you know, quote unquote responsible thing to do is to like set boundaries and to, and and to find ways to discipline in ways that will benefit both parties, you know, but like, that's boring. Like, I don't like, sometimes I don't want to go there and I just want to indulge completely. Right. And, you know, I think that the good thing about anime is she is, she is really a smart dog. And I think she just needs to learn how to learn, which. Yeah. You know, there's this idea that we all know how to learn, but yeah, she is still a puppy and she's, you know, she's getting it. Like, um, I think one of the hard things with us has been being sterner in certain situations. Like when she goes out on a leash, like we're, we're in a busy city basically. So like, we have to be a little strict with her on the leash and that's just hard sometimes because like, you don't want to be mean, but if you're not stern, it's being mean because it's not giving her like the tools to be safe. Yeah. And so I kind of look at it like that and it's yeah. been a little easier, but it's still, it's still hard. <laughs> it is hard. Like, I, and I won't belabor this point too much longer, but <laughs> like it, it makes me think about my relationship with, uh, so the listeners may know that we have a couple of horses, you know, this mm-hmm. Joelle and, you know, I, every time I work with the horses, I don't do it as often as Jessica does. She's the, the horse person. Uh, she would like to be a horse uh, uh, as opposed to a human, I think. <laughs> but, you know, I'm reminded that they, like recently, actually, there was an experience where, you know, it's been raining here in California mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, the horses have just been so muddy and just kind of nutty, you know? Yeah. And so we took them out to just kind of walk and stretch their legs a bit. And Tessa, uh, one of our horses, I was holding her, you know, by, uh, you know, I had her on rope and... She just kind of like did this jumping around thing and I, I was calm and that's kind of like the, one of the things you need to be because yeah. uh, you don't want to, you know, they sense your anxiety, right? But also the other thing is like sometimes they need to be met with a certain level of energy back right. toward them and I have a yeah. hard time with that. Yeah. I have a hard time <laughs> with it, but I know, you know, as Jessica reminds me, I know that they need that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not doing my job as... They need that reciprocation. Yeah, they do. They need to be... They need to know like, oh, this is... Like, they're they're the one in charge and it's going to be okay, you know? And yeah. and so, I don't know. I think that's a good reminder for myself in in my relationship with Scooby, certainly, and, and probably just humans, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was really anxious. So, we can stop talking about dogs for a second, yeah, <laughs> in a second, but I want to tell this. Um, so I was really, really anxious um, actually taking anime to a dog park at first. Right. Because, like, I knew she really, like, we knew she wanted to get out and run, and that would be so good for her. But I was just really worried because, you know, she's a rescue. We haven't had her that long. Like, she's, <laughs> we know, like, 
she wants to be with us, but we don't know if she will just take off and run and lose herself. So I was just like very nervous about it. And the first one we went to was in San Diego. It's actually a really nice dog park, but it's not completely enclosed. It has like, it's almost entirely enclosed and it has like a gate that stays open. And so I was kind of nervous about it, but we went with friends and we just let her go. And the thing is that she would run and run and run and then come back and check. We're still here. Uh, and run and run and run come back like run past us be like check in and i'm like okay i feel much better like bringing her that's exactly what you want stuff like that yeah because like i want her to be able to be free but i want her to kind of be looking for us to Mm -hmm. make you know yeah so that just made me feel way better now i feel a lot better like bringing her that's pretty much anywhere because i know ultimately she's like looking for us to like care for her so she knows you're her people yeah exactly that's beautiful i love that um, well, I before we jump into your story, Joelle, I, I wanted to just give an update on my side. Things, mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's been very rainy here in Southern California. And where we are living currently, it's, it's, it's lots of trees. It's kind of more rural and there's just tons of mud. And we've had, yeah. you know, our, our neighbors have had to like evacuate and, and there's been flooding and it's just been... Uh, quite an ordeal um Mm -hmm. and i felt just a bit of cabin fever (laughs) you know it's one of those weird things where like you want to like cozy down but you're also like you have the anxiety of just like well can i go like there was actually a day where we couldn't leave because the roads were closed so it's like this sense of being trapped so that was kind of a anxiety test for me (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i got through it and um it's actually the sun is out today, which is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of where I've been. I've been, I've been uh, dealing with a little bit of that anxiety, but yeah, it's okay. No, that makes total sense to me too, and I'm I'm glad you're kind of getting through it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump into your story, Joelle. Um, I think there's lots to talk about in your story, um, but. Let's let's start with some sort of seminal moments. Uh, you know, these are maybe moments, a couple of moments maybe that stick out in your brain as being pivotal uh, experiences uh, in your own mental health journey. They could be from your childhood, your, your young adulthood, you know, even your adulthood, just kind of pivotal moments in, in your mental health journey. Okay. Well, you know, I think, I think a lot of, so a lot of my distress kind of stems around this incredible feeling of being misunderstood. Mm. Like even when I'm using specific words, like people, um, because, because they have a different point of view than me or because their experience is different than me, just like having this completely wrong idea, even when I try very hard to communicate exactly what I mean to communicate. Um, and actually, I was talking about this moment like a couple days ago. There was this time in, I want to say sixth grade, that uh, first of all, like elementary school and, and that stuff was kind of a shit show for me because I just like I wanted to do good and I wanted to have fun and like, but like I didn't really, I didn't feel like I was quite catching on in terms of like what was expected of me, like pretty much all the time. And so like I'd randomly get in trouble. For me, it was random. Hmm. I didn't know, and so like then I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know when I was acting good, when I was acting bad, like, did you you not have, uh, did you feel lost in terms of what, I mean, did you not have like 
role models to say like, oh, like this is how you behave. This is how you not behave. Like what did you feel a little bit well unanchored in that way? I think, yeah, I do think so because there's, um, so I'm autistic (laughs) and, um, and it's a developmental issue and it's, it's, it can manifest in like communication and understanding and an understanding of context. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a hard time generalizing things sometimes or like super concentrating on details. So because of that, um, and because, um, it, you know, my, I'm supposed to be intelligent. <laughs> um, I wasn't really given a lot of support I need. So in terms of checking with questions, like, is this okay? Like it was often seen as me like talking back mm. Um, you know, me just being chatty and I didn't understand that we were quieting down. That was me misbehaving, like right. all of these things. So there's, there's this one time in sixth grade where I think we're doing a group project or something. I can't remember the exact situation, but I got in trouble for something. I wasn't even sure at the time what it was. And still now I'm not sure what it was at the time, what it, what it was. I feel like it was, I was accidentally talking when I wasn't supposed to be. Gotcha. But anyway, so I was told to go and sit out in the hall. And I went and sat out in the hall for the rest of class. The teacher comes out and is like furious with me. And I don't really understand. And she says, are you still out here? Why didn't you come back in? And I'm like, I don't, what? (laughs) You told me to sit out in the hall. So I was waiting for you to tell me when to not, when to come back in. She never told me, like, apparently the expectation is you go sit out in the hall until you feel you're composed. Oh, yeah. I guess. Sure. Like, that's what I'm guessing now. Cause this is the second time I'm, I'm talking about this in a short period. So I'm guessing now, like that's what the suggestion was, but like, obviously I never heard that. And if I heard that, like, I'm not going to know what that means because I don't even know why I got in trouble in the first place. Right. Did you So this really sticks out to me? Yeah. Like, and then I got sent to the counselor's office because that was seen as like an elevation of me misbehaving. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, First of all, like I, I totally relate to the the, the anxiety and struggle with feeling um, not being seen or heard. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that's really difficult and hard. Uh, did in this moment in sixth grade, did you did the did you already have your autism diagnosis, or did that come later? So no, I wasn't officially diagnosed until I was like nineteen. Okay, um, and. To be honest, around that diagnosis, like there's been a lot of personal like conflict because, you know, the people I knew when I was diagnosed with autism, like I happen to know a lot of people with autism online and it was, it, it, they, they treated kind of like a clicky thing, which is, which I can understand if you feel like singled out and you want to find people like yourself, you know, you, you want to form like a bond with a bunch of people. And so like, but it ended up being like uh, a judgment of like exclusion if it ends up like you don't align with them in other ways. I see. So it was, you know, it was very hard for me. And also, um, you know, so I really doubted it for myself for a long time. And then uh, actually like I, I uh, saw a specialist in ADHD in Cambridge and he's like, no, you're autistic. <laughs> like, okay. And then when I was like 23, 24, I went to McLean and they're like, no, you're autistic. I'm like, okay. But how come nobody like believes me? 
Um, how is how is the sorry? Um, no, I'm just curious how how do they test for that again? So there's um, first of all there's there's no psych tests that I've had that I've been taking like back through since I was like five or six years old. So there's that. Um, and there are certain like um, neuropsychological profiles, like in terms of uh, verbal intelligence and spatial intelligence and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's also like some of it is self-report. Some of it is historical report. And then um, what was I going to say? Oh, right. Um, <laughs> so, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's, a lot of it is like if you're having executive functioning issues, but then you're also having these other issues like sensory issues, sensory processing, things like that. You know, there's, there's something called the AQ, which is the autism quotient test. Okay. But it's all, it all needs to be kind of be taken in context. And I have, you know, there's, it's ultimately a neurological developmental issue. Right. So, you know, you look at when somebody started talking. I started talking pretty late, but then when I did start talking, I just kind of took off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's not just like being socially weird or whatever. It's really, you know, an issue of communication and comprehension at what people are putting out and what you're putting out and then what people understand from what you're putting out. And there's a lot of sensory issues that can often come with it to some degree, like in some aspect. So it's it's really like a diagnosis of context. Right, right. And and I can see very clearly how that can contribute to you feeling out of place. Yeah. You know, you mm-hmm. feeling not seen or heard. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of emotional state of that? Like did you maybe at school you didn't feel seen, but did you feel seen at home? Like what, what, what was, what was that like? So I think for my parents, uh, like, yeah, I did, but I didn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) meaning that, um, I think my parents just really didn't understand the extent of my like sensory sensitivities. Like there are certain noises that, um, like most people have this, there's, there's some noises that just like scare you, make your heart race. Sure. But, like, for me, that was a lot of noises. Like, it took me until, like, my late 20s to be comfortable standing in a garage with it opening. <laughs> oh, wow. I still don't vacuum. Like, I can vacuum, but it is very, it's very distressful for me. Not, like, just because it's work. Like, who cares? Like, <laughs> I can mop. But, like, it's the no- the ongoing noise. And part yeah. of it is, like, I'm not sure entirely what it is. I think some of it is that I'm used to having so much input and sound. And then when you have a very loud noise, first of all, it's overwhelming. And second of all, it takes away all that information. Mm-hmm. So it makes me feel like displaced and scared. <laughs> right. Um, so there's that. And, you know, my, my parents just kind of wanted to do what they thought would prepare me for the world. So like they weren't particularly sensitive to that a lot. Um, and I had a, a lot of frustration tolerance issues, which is a huge thing huge thing in in autism it's you know the thing that we call meltdowns Mm -hmm. it's really because there's there's not a lot of tolerance for frustration which is which can be like a very physical experience so i would have (laughs) i would have what they thought were just like tantrums because i'm being difficult until like sometimes i was just physically exhausted 
but it was really, I was just so overwhelmed and had no capacity to deal with it. So like they, they knew I was a special child, <laughs> like very sensitive and special and, and took things to heart, but also like, I think to some degree they, they thought I was just intentionally oversensitive, mm. but they didn't, fair, so they didn't know, know you had autism at that point. No. And still it's, you know, it's a thing that it's so hard because it's a thing that we will mildly talk, like occasionally talk about, like, I'll be like, Oh, I'm writing for this autism thing. Or um, I talk to this person who deals with autistics da, 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 da. and like, they'll, there'll be a, Oh, that's nice. Mm. But there's no, there's no conversation. Like there is with the OCD or the bipolar and it's, and I think part of it is that, you know, um, my mom is a nurse and my sister studied health and I studied health and we, and, uh, I think there's just not an understanding of autism and there certainly wasn't when she was doing training. And so like in her mind, the first time I mentioned it, she's like, there's no way because even she, as a nurse who has worked in all these different capacities, like she's been in the ER, she's been, been in various parts of the hospital. She's been a personal nurse. She's been a hospice nurse, like just all she's taught. She even doesn't have like a good understanding of it. So she has this thing in her mind that's autism and that's not me. And I think for her, it's still hard for her to turn around on that. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it, is there any guilt, do you think, or shame? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't really think that's the biggest part of it. I think the biggest part is just that. I want to say this very carefully. <laughs> sure. <laughs> is that, is that I get my autistic traits from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have two parents. <laughs> I see myself in them a lot. And part, you know, part of, honestly, part of the autistic mindset is that it's, it's just hard to um, reintegrate new information sometimes without like a very conscious effort. Hmm. So, and, and it's more like, this is how the world is. I'm very comfortable with this. Oh no, there's just new stuff. And that's like, where are the rules and expectations? And so I think, you know, if I can kind of generalize that to sometimes when we get new information about something that we really thought we had a solid idea about, and it touches us personally, like it's very hard. Sure. You know, it's like a struggle. And I think, you know, sometimes for her, it's just like, for my mom, especially, it's just like, uh, that's, do I need to spend time on that right now? Like there's so much else going on with her, with her and her life and my dad and, you know, my family that it's, I, I think it's fair for her to prioritize thinking about that or not. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's a long drawn out response, yeah. but that's, I'm trying to. Well, you know, I think what, <laughs> maybe what I'm getting at also is like one of the, you know, a lot of the work you do now and we'll, we'll get to that, but like is about um, who we are and, and being mm -hmm. and, and, and presenting who we are honestly mm -hmm. and openly with people yeah. because who we are matter matters deeply. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think this is all wrapped up in your identity and the context of your autism spectrum disorder and your OCD and your bipolar and you know, you hear about, you know, I know that it would be hard for any parent to come to terms with 
oh, my daughter or my son um, is, is, has this thing that presents challenges for them in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. of co- I, I mean, I imagine that's so hard to accept. But they, I mean, they don't have to do anything, but right. you, you want them to, right? Because you want them to understand the whole context of what is going on. Right. It's, you know, I, I do think it's, excuse me, <laughs> drinking soda. No um, I do think it's, you know, also partly just that there's, there's so much misunderstanding and so much stigma around autism. Like, if I'm telling somebody I'm, I'm autistic, and by the way, it's still like, one on one, I'm still kind of careful about talking about that, which just sucks. <laughs> like, that's, that's like my last frontier. <laughs> Why do you Which, suppose you're careful about it? What what are, what what are the, your fears? What are your what are you scared of? Well, about? so the thing is that you know autism, it, being autistic, there's so much that goes on inside internally mm-hmm. that is not expressed accurately on the outside. Is not observed accurately, basically. Um, and there's you know something that autistics have really been saying for years is like the whole thing with masking, the whole thing with pretending to be like everyone else is such a, a terrible, distressful burden. Yeah. Courtney that. talked about that in previous episode of this mm-hmm. show. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then like all of a sudden this validated research comes out basically saying exactly what we're saying is that like, it's literally killing us. Um, so when I talk to someone and say like, yeah, I'm autistic and this is my experience. I may or may not get a very severe pushback and that's painful. Mm. It's to be honest, it is very painful because the reasons I talk to people about my personal experience, like the reason I'm on the show with you right now is so that other people can have an understanding of different perspectives of how different things can look and how different things can feel on the inside versus the outside. And so if I am sharing my experience being autistic, that is something I am hoping you will get something out of. It is not, I'm autistic, treat me special. (laughs) It's, I'm autistic, this is my reality, this is my identity, treat me the same, and treat other people the same. So I am very hesitant to, you know, even when I work, if people still know that as an outsider perspective that I'm autistic, I don't ever introduce it as a topic. Yeah. Because there's just such little understanding and people are very clunky about it. But if somebody wanted to ask me about it at work or whatever, in whatever position, I'd be happy to talk about it. Yeah. I'm sorry. That, uh, I get that completely, you know, and it's, it's a sad thing, but how do we get past? I mean, yes, there, there is, there is stigma, around autism there's stigma around uh, you know many disorders mm-hmm. but how like the only way to get past it is for you to be doing what you're doing now being open about your experiences yeah true yeah but how do we <laughs> like i mean i guess like what i'm like and it maybe this will tie into like the work you're doing now but like just the the education piece because ultimately that's what it comes down to is like a lack of education leads uh-huh. to these preconceived notions of what this person is right 
Yeah, I, you know, it's, so it's a lack of education. And then also, um, I really also feel it's people with their own experiences, whether it's, you know, they have a family member who's autistic, um, like they are quote unquote, a caregiver for someone who's autistic. They've had a really intense experience with someone who's autistic. Um, I think that it's comparing this experience and those feelings and what you know from your experience versus like what I'm trying to, what they think I'm trying to say about autism, about being autistic. See, yeah. And I hear that, but the thing that frustrates me and maybe it's, maybe I'm presenting it as easier said than done, but I feel that it is our duty as humans to listen and meet people where they are and don't bring any of our shit into it, you know, that, that will, um, yes, fair. <laughs> you know, that will, that will sort of, uh, you know, any preconceived notions, any biases, mm-hmm. any of that stuff. Like we need to check all that at the, at the door when we interact with people, right. w- especially when we're listening to people who are, opening up their heart and telling, Mm -hmm. telling us about their experiences. Yeah. Um, okay. So the thing is, I think that's learned. Mm. People need practice doing it. Yeah. And people need like safe, supportive practice doing it. So, I I mean, I'm just going to say like, you have a mom whose kid is autistic, who's six years old and she's being fed all these scary stories like that your kid at six years old with a developmental disorder, meaning that he or she is years behind in development. Like you don't know what's going to happen. You can't tell what's going to happen 10 years down the road. So they have a six year old who is either not talking or not quite understanding how to use their words. They're, you know, the, the six year old is having temper tantrums, quote unquote, but they're really manifestations of, being unable to cope with everything that's being thrown at them. And you know, that the mom of the autistic kid is like, I don't have any understanding and this is not what you look like because they can't imagine that someone that their kid could grow up to be someone who they deem higher functioning. Mm. And that's part of it too. Like it's, it's this, it's this assignment of functioning labels of this is harder than, than what you're going through with things like that. It's all, and so, like, I think there's a lot of defensiveness, definitely. Sure. Uh, and I think parents of autistic kids, I think it's hard for them to accept the support that might be more helpful because they're told that's not accurate and that's not their experience and that's not their kid's experience. But the reality is we have all these autistic adults saying, no, that was my experience. That's my internal experience now, like I'm trying to tell you. Right. So I, I get it, but yeah. it doesn't make it easy. Talk to me a little bit about the, I think um, I read something of yours or watched, a, you know, a, a speech of yours where you talked about your relationship with autism and this pull to want to appear quote unquote normal. What does that look like for you? And is that... I mean, I imagine that's very, I mean, I, I, I empathize with that (laughs) pull, right? I empathize with that, but obviously it's tricky. It's problematic. It's messy. Well, you know, the, so the thing about 
autism is that it's seen as like an, basically an inherent defect by some people. Right. And so I'm not saying like, that's right. That's accurate. But I'm saying like, that's, that's the basis of where I feel like the whole masking thing comes in Mm. because, you know, some of the quote unquote treatments, therapies for autistics, basically the, the premise is that you need to act like everyone else. So it's easier for you to be in the world. And from an observer's point of view, it is easier for somebody to be in the world if they look like everyone else. But for that individual's point of view, it is painful. It's very hard. It takes a lot of energy. Um, you know, it takes constant checking. Um, in addition to all this extra stimulus that we constantly get, we're also having to double check that stimulus to how everyone else is reacting and then mimic that reaction. And, you know, it, it's a constant 24 seven Every single second, checking where am I looking, how am I walking, how am I standing, um, ignore those uncomfortable feelings on my arm from my restrictive clothing, like, mm. <laughs> don't put your hands over your ears when the sound hurts, things like that, and suppressing that constantly takes a toll. Wow, yeah. And then that's masking. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people actually, do, it's not just autistics who do that, but it, it is, like, systemically... <laughs> encouraged and enforced in a in a in like a medical model way with autistics hmm. but you know there's a lot of other groups and demographics that feel like they have to hide who they are feel like they have to suppress and oppress their internal feelings and how they would naturally manifest them uh and that's why those groups i feel <laughs> are more vulnerable to taking their own life right yeah it makes sense what a what a burden that would be to feel like you can't be yourself and to suppress who you are. Mm -hmm. What a, what a tragedy that is. I, uh, my heart is breaking just kind of, um, imagining you in that way and, and others in that way. How, how do we, <laughs> how do we, how do we allow people to be who they are? <laughs> that is you know, the I ultimate think, question. Yeah. I think, I think it's really a, about figuring out how a person is communicating first of all because you know a lot of a lot of the responses for for autism or or a lot of uh, mental health issues or developmental issues is that well this person doesn't communicate hmm. and that's that's another really big issue like everybody is communicating it's just you have to figure out what language they're speaking um and so, like, I think honoring how people communicate and then, like, celebrating what makes them them. And I feel like a lot of times we're not doing either. We're not doing either sufficiently. Yeah. So, like, I, you know, when, so when my husband proposed to me, he said to an entire, entire room of people, whole audience, like, one of the reasons he loves me is because I make noises. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's true. And that's basically like vocally stimming, like uh -huh. getting out the stress and the pressure and just like making weird noises and like to have somebody just like celebrate that and love that is exactly what we need to do for everyone. That's so beautiful. Instead of, yeah, you know, instead of saying like, well, no, you need to fit in to make it easier for you to navigate in the world, but really I'm making it easier for everyone else to navigate around me. And that's not good really for anyone because they miss out on 
learning about these unique individuals with their unique experiences and point of view. And then the individual is just constantly distressed. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's like, without that, we we just stay in our bubbles, right? Yeah. It's like the, you know, the, the analogy of someone traveling abroad and, 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 and gleaning that culture and finding different perspectives from various uh, modes of living. The same thing applies to all of the the broad spectrum of things that we experience and struggle with uh, in our fellow humans, Mm -hmm. you know, mentally and emotionally. I think it it all applies. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, So one of the things that I uh, know about you is you have OCD. Is this correct? Yes, I have OCD. Yes. <laughs> you have OCD. Yes. The OCD is not me. Yes. No, yes, you aren't do. OCD. You have OCD. Um, yeah. I'm trying to be better about my language regarding saying that. Um, I had a very dear listener reach out to me in my conversation with my brother, mm-hmm. Tannen, on the schizophrenia episode. I think I had mentioned, you know, I said he's schizophrenic or something at some point. Yeah. And I, I think it's good to correct. I was corrected by Katie, uh, it, which I appreciate because it's uh-huh. it's just a good reminder to me. Like you said, it's not, uh, it's a thing you have, but it's not you. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing about that too, is that there may be like um, trends in groups like autistics, je- like the majority of autistics answering for themselves are autistic. They're not on the autism spectrum and they don't have autism. But like when I'm, when I'm talking, when I'm talking to you, when I'm talking in a broader sense, I often say people who have autism or things like that to just Mm -hmm. make room for everyone's kind of identification. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and it's more about the individual's identification, not what their parent or provider or whatever thinks. Yeah. You know, but I, I am autistic. You know, I, I, I have been diagnosed with autism, but I'm autistic and that's how I, how I see myself. Okay. How I talk might vary, <laughs> but yeah, so it's, you know, and there are some people, there are some people, and I think they're in the minority who say that they are schizophrenic and it's, it's a way to like take that power or they feel like that's, that's um, helped them develop their identity. Like I am bipolar for me. Okay. So. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, it does matter um, how each of us individually yeah. take, takes that language on. I think that's a, that's a good that's a good point. So I really, sorry, I was just gonna say yeah, I really yeah. appreciate that you're trying to like, you know, integrate that into your conversations. Like, be aware and and make room for that because a lot of people, not a lot of people, but there there are some people who just don't make room for it. So. Yeah, you're right. They don't. But uh, as we're talking about here, we have to, right? We have mm-hmm. to make room for every, all diverse ideas and opinions and languages and because mm-hmm. they're all valid and we're all so unique. And to, 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 to put my sort of perspective onto another is just arrogant and an aggression, you know? Uh, so I, I feel strongly about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 
Well, um, uh, so about OCD. Yeah, what? OCD. So <laughs> one of the things that I read is you had said, and correct me if I'm wrong, you had said you have uh, pure obsessional OCD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you explain to me what that is? So, <laughs> yeah, so it's, um, you know, it's kind of a misnomer because pure obsessional OCD, like, suggests that there's only obsessions, not compulsions. In OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, there are obsessions and compulsions, and, and they work off each other basically to make you feel nuts. Um, <laughs> so y- you might be obsessed with, with this idea that, like, if I, don't, if I don't check the lights, the house will burn down. And the compulsion is to check the lights. I see. Or it, it's it's actually simpler than that. The house is going to burn down, but if I check the lights, the house won't burn down. So I'm really simplifying it, but I'm trying to make it um, easy. Uh, and pure O is where there's supposedly only obsessions and no compulsions, but the compulsions actually are there. They're they're internal. They're either internal or not readily observable. Um, and so it can be things like avoidance. So I actually end up alienating myself, even though that's not what I want to do at all. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it can be things like, I just won't talk. Um, which for various reasons, I feel like it's a little easier for me to not talk. Um, like sometimes I won't talk. Um, sometimes I will literally just drop off all social media um, there's been times where I've just been in my room for several days, um, but also doing things like being really anxious about how I'm breathing, how I'm taking up space, whether it's like physical space or like thought space or, <laughs> or um, like noise space. Um, and it's very, pure O is just very hard to, to get a grip on really. And, and I was talking to someone one time and they, they're like, well, that kind of sounds like social anxiety. And I was like, yeah, it does. Um, but social anxiety is like more in my understanding, I feel, cause I also get socially anxious, but I don't have social anxiety. So, <laughs> but I feel like social anxiety is more, everyone is, is looking at me and, and you're very worried and conscious about how people are looking at you and perceiving you. Whereas for me, pure O is there is a certain right way to do things. I will never, ever be able to do that. Like it's like something in a social simple. setting, for example, in any setting. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it feels very judgy, but it's like, it's, um, it's a judgment on myself of myself and also of the universe. Like there's a right way to do things in the universe and I will never be able to achieve that. Even like signing in at an office, putting the pen down, like there was a right place to put that pen. Mm. I will not do it. And so what happens is like, you know, I'll I'll put down the pen and then I'll have this um, compulsion where like either I'll have to look up and smile and like, you know, make sure nobody is judging me for putting the pen down and it, it gets very exhausting So, um, and that's just a very simple example, but it adds up. Like there are times where it's so bad, where it's like in my mind, putting the pen somewhere wrong can lead to like the total destruction of the universe, which doesn't make any sense, but that's OCD. Right. I hope that helps a little bit. It does help. It does help. I, 
<laughs> uh, before mm -hmm. I go uh, down this route, I had a... Uh, so when you said pure O, I'm just going to add a little bit of levity to this conversation. I, I thought mm -hmm. of like pure O sounds very much like a uh, some sort of drug in like some scientific <laughs> sci science fiction dystopia. It totally doesn't does. it. It totally does. Yeah, you, you got you got some of that pure O for me. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah, and it's funny because it's like there's these levels of familiarity with OCD, whereas like some people will say like purely obsessional obsessive compulsive disorder and then they'll say like pure ocd and then people will just drop it and be like pure o pure o and that's like the hardcore like <laughs> that's it, that's not how it really is but yeah you get that feeling that that's like a so some designer drug or designer exactly <laughs> exactly it's kind of yeah funny. and when were you diagnosed with uh pure o so i was not diagnosed with pure o until I think I was 23 or 24. Um, but I, but what, what's really awful <laughs> is that um, throughout, like since I was a kid, my providers has been saying I have obsessive tendencies. I have compulsive tendencies, things like that, but nobody would diagnose me as OCD because there weren't those outward signs and when it gets really really bad like sometimes I do stuff like I'll arrange stuff or I'll I'll physically check stuff or I'll wash my hands a little more but it's not that's not that's the center of the issue so they just said obsessive and compulsive tendencies and then um what I did they see in you what were those tendencies those so and, and it's it's funny because there's observably there's some overlap with being autistic. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the need for things to be a certain way, but it's, it's more than a need. It's, it's a fear that they aren't a certain way. So they, they saw, um, like how I was doing my homework or how I was taking notes in class was very like rigid and needing it to be a certain way. Um, how I would, you know, read for school how, how like I would sit at dinner and rearrange the cutlery just mm -hmm. a little bit, just a teeny bit, just like nudge it. Yeah. Um, but also, you know what? So the pure O part of the OCD was actually seen as residual psychosis <laughs> or residual paranoia from my bipolar episodes and treated as such until I finally went, <laughs> I got to McLean and started talking to someone. And they're like, you, you have OCD. <laughs> and honestly, like for some things it doesn't, the diagnosis itself doesn't matter so much as much as like taking the symptoms into account. Mm -hmm. But with OCD, particularly Puro, sometimes if you, if you um, treat it with medication that is for psychosis or paranoia, it can make it so much worse. And that's what happened to me that, and, and, you know, I didn't, I also didn't really have an understanding of OCD. So I was like, uh, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to be paranoid, <laughs> like, but it's not paranoia. It's like kind of a different mechanism that can observably look the same. So once I started taking, um, and I'm not saying that this is for everyone, but this is what started helping for me is that really realizing a, I have OCD 
seeing that discomfort and distress in that context and kind of using that information um, and realizing some of these thoughts are not actually me. Um, and then taking a medication that is more for OCD and anxiety than for like psychosis or paranoia. Mm. What is, um, what is, what is the medication that has helped you? Um, it's, I'm like, I'm blanking on, um, it's fluvoxamine. It's Luvox. Okay. And it's an SSRI and it's, you know, SSRIs generally, um, there's a couple that are, that are really, really good for OCD and others that are, that are kind of okay. Um, you know, there's, there's also therapies for OCD, um, which have been really hard for me. Um, how so? And I, um, so there's exposure response therapy and it's, you know, like the, the typical way you do it is you, you sit down with a therapist who is, who is well-versed in OCD and exposure response therapy. And you basically make a hierarchy of exposures and exposure is something that trips up, um, that trips you up and makes you want to perform a compulsion. Mm. So, you know, if it's every time I see the color red, I have to, I don't know, I have to cover my eyes. Like then you go and be like, okay, so what's the closest to the color red that you can see? Or, you know, something like that, like doing something, looking at something that's brown, like, can you touch a brown spot might oh, be the interesting. Lowest, yeah. You know, and then you kind of build up to like, ideally, like just hanging out on a red car in a red car, you know, things like that. Um, but for me, it's very, very hard to, and I think a lot of it is because I'm autistic, is that there's, there needs to be a separation between stuff that has to do with me being autistic that seems the same as the OCD stuff. And it's not like things. And so that's where I get tripped up, but also that's kind of what makes exposure response difficult because some of the things that I end up doing in response to distress that have to do with me being autistic are comfort. They're not, I don't feel I have to do them. They're not a compulsion. Okay. So it's not like I feel stressed and then I do this, this thing. And then like, it just comes on later stronger, which is what happens with OCD. And for me, exposure response has been like terrifying and I have tried it a couple times and it's just not, and it's not something that's worked for me. And it's possible because I don't have someone who is specialized in OCD and, and autism and has worked with a lot of people doing mm. that. So <laughs> So I really, like, I don't want to take a knock at exposure response. And that's really important for me to say, because I think it is incredibly valuable and it works for so many people. And it works for a lot of people in ways that like, they don't have to take medication anymore, or they just do it without taking medication. And because they have good support and a good system, they work through the hierarchy or whatever system. And, and they're basically able to just like either keep it in check or it doesn't even bother them, which is fantastic and amazing. Um, but yeah, so... <laughs> hmm. I'm not, sh I can't remember what your question yeah, was. Yeah, no, but. I was just curious about like what, you know, uh, just about the, uh, the therapies that didn't work yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, CBT has usually not been helpful for me because it's all stuff that I try to employ, mm -hmm. you know, anyway, just kind of in my personal journey, like these are stuff that I've kind of developed, like to help me manage or cope and, I just, most of the time, if we're strictly working with CBT, I just kind of feel like bored. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
but but that's just me. Like some yeah. people find it very very helpful to have that kind of coaching and that kind that kind of like thought reframing and things like that. Yeah. When you are in uh, when it's coming on severe, uh, how do you deal with that? How do you handle that? So, I kind of like to say the first rule of OCD is don't talk about OCD because okay. it re- well it really like part of it is that you can't tell people about it. Like that's, that's part of the, the feelings that I've gotten. And then a lot of people I know have gotten and, and cause, cause there's a, a lot of like personal shame involved in OCD often because you're doing these things that make no sense that feel ridiculous. Like, why can't you just stop? Because you because feel like you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. But also, I, I mean, there, there are different things that I've done that, that have been a little bit observable if you're paying attention. And, like, there are definitely a lot of times where I feel – where people perceive me as an asshole. Like, literally perceive me as an asshole. I've had discussions later on. Hmm. And it's because of the OCD. And it's not like I am actively being a jerk. It's just, like, the avoidance thing. I see. And, you know, my, my natural tendency is to avoid. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Like, don't see anybody, don't interact with them, don't interact with the world because then I can't commit any harm. But that ends up really not being great because, yeah, that proves me right. I'm not committing any harm <laughs> that I can see. But on the other side of the door, the people who are caring about me, who are worrying about me, who think I'm mad at them, things like that, you know. Um, so what I try to do now is just really acknowledge, like, okay, I'm having a bit of an OCD thing. Like, and this is what's going on in my head a little bit. So it's not you. It's like, just, I'm trying to deal with this. Like, and usually that. So you you are being vocal with the people around you is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. That's great. I'm having, I'm having problems. Like (laughs) I'm also having problems communicating. Oh no, not Um, at all. I was just, I was just making it clear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I try to tell people, yeah. um, At least the people who are closest to me that like my OCD is really kicking up right now and it's making me do these things and I don't really want to do those things. So like, I'm just having a hard time. And like, and if I've, if I'm kind of pushing through that, like I, I tell them how I'm trying to push through that, but also just reassuring people, like, this is a thing going on in my brain. It's not you. It's not a relationship. It's not like how I care about you, things like that. And that not only I feel improves like the situation from the people who care for the people who care about me, but for me also, because when I get, when I get the supportive response, it helps. And it doesn't feel like this secret that's shameful, that's stupid, that's ridiculous that like I have to keep to myself. Yeah. And I think part of the, you know, part of the way that the, that OCD flourishes is that we keep it to ourselves. We feel like we have to stay locked in. And that alienates us and it just keeps us with our thoughts that, that confirm these fears because we're doing these compulsions that take away the anxiety and fear for a second. And then it comes back and we do it again. And so if we can reach out and get people to help us like disrupt that cycle just a little bit, it really helps. Mm. I think that's such a beautiful lesson in how we interact with people, um, in the context of our mental health, because mm-hmm. it is hard sometimes to talk to, to say, Hey, I'm going through this thing right now. Like even with the people you love most in your life, like I struggle sometimes even just saying like, Hey, Jessica, 
I'm really uh, struggling with my depression right now. Mm-hmm. Like we had this thing recently where I like one of the things that I do when I'm f- when I feel like I'm being like you know I I just take things I can take things so personally and mm-hmm. I go back to this part in my little sensitive boy where I just shut down you know and I I um and in the moment it's sometimes hard to s- communicate to her to say hey I'm feeling this right now and I don't know if I'm going to be in this moment very effective um, mm-hmm. or, you know, in helping you in this or very good at communicating. But like getting there is such a great thing. You can, like you said, you can do for yourself being open like that. You're giving people insight to your own, into your own head. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's allowing people to, you know, have sympathy, maybe understand a little better. And, and that's a, yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, I think, I don't always get this as feedback, but I think sometimes when people do end up being able to break through and reach out about their OCD, like sometimes the understanding is that like they'll be able to just stop what they're doing Hmm. and like, and you should enable them stopping. Um, And what that kind of can look like sometimes though, is, is that you become part of a compulsion that replaces the original compulsion oh i see so but but i think like for me and i don't want to say this is for everyone but i I think for a lot of people just just if you're supporting someone with ocd just knowing that they're having a really hard time and probably way harder in their head (laughs) than they can ever express to you so stressing on them to stop things is is not the best support but stressing on them that you can give them whatever support they want and you can just be there and they can talk to you is really helpful. And it's not going to, you know, cure everything, but it will help people to kind of uh, not have to constantly figure out how do I explain this to my loved one? Yeah. But how can I figure this out? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. I think that's really good, really great advice. I think we can all take, take with us into our interactions with other, other feely humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, how you got into the work you're doing now, you know, you are a peer specialist. You work in like peer, peer support. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I guess when I was around 19 or 20, I, um, I basically was having like a really hard time. Like I, I mean, what you might call a breakdown, <laughs> but I definitely been experiencing like distress for a very long time, like since I was a little kid, Mm -hmm. but that was kind of the breaking point. And, um, for me, it was just, it was hard to meet people. Like it it was just hard to socialize, whatever. And it was hard to find people to connect to that weren't providers, basically (laughs) to talk about like the issues that I was dealing with. I see. Um, so I went online, (laughs) I went online and, and tried to find like communities that you know, I could talk to people and like, and also like, it didn't have to be a hundred percent serious, a hundred percent of the time that wow. I could, I could, you know, really just talk about it like a person. And, um, I did, I found a community and, uh, I found a lot of people like supporting each other, talking about how to talk to their providers, how to advocate for themselves, where to find information to discuss with their providers, how to make things more mutual and like more of a team effort for like recovering quality of life rather than just take this pill or just do this therapy or just do, 
or, or, you know, just go exercise five times a week, like things like that, which seemed very prescriptive and, and very controlling. And then, you know, for me, those kinds of things, not having input triggered a lot of other stuff that I'd been experiencing my whole life. But also I felt like if I can, and can have an understanding with my providers, then I feel like I will be able to be more communicative with them and I'll be able to understand more about what's going on with myself. So I found, I found this community, this online community, and um, I ended up being a moderator. And then I ended up being an administrator of their um, support board and their chat. And I was, I was just like, why can't I do this in real life? Yeah. And, um, you know, I was like, why can't I get paid for this? I need to get paid for this. Like, this is, this is a thing that people need in life. Like, people need someone to... Um, to practice advocating for themselves. People, you know, basically need someone that they can practice these skills and get this information with and not be directed. That's, that's more than like just a pal, you know, Mm -hmm. like somebody you work with, um, to get those goals. And so, uh, you know, when I, I lived in Massachusetts, I, I ended up moving down to Massachusetts from New Hampshire. Um, I went to school for a few different years, <laughs> um, <laughs> a few different years. Um, but I was studying, uh, you know, uh, psychology, art therapy, biology. Um, I took, you know, some courses in counseling psychology and I was like, this is not, this is not exactly what I want to do. You know, forget that I actually had to drop out of school, but, <laughs> but still it was like, I don't want to be a counselor. I just really felt like, you know, uh, being able to be with people and give them the confidence and the strength and tools to direct their life was really what I wanted to do. And so um, the Transformation Center in Massachusetts, actually, uh, they have, uh, well, they had, I'm not sure they do anymore. They had a, a peer specialist training that was uh, funded by DMH and um, it's a statewide certification. Uh, You know, I, I had kind of been uh, kicking around with NAMI for a little while with the only peer run affiliate of NAMI in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had all that work under my belt, like um, not only just generally volunteering, but also I was on their leadership team and, um, and I was hired by them, which is like the only paid position they've hired for. Um, (laughs) And so I had all that. And then, you know, I, I got news of this training and I'm like, yes, I want to do that. So I applied and I, I got to the training. But, you know, the first time around, the training was very hard for me. Um, first of all, they were doing a different model. And second of all, I just wasn't ready. Um, like I wasn't feeling well physically and I didn't I didn't really have. I guess I didn't really have either the structure within myself or like the planning to be able to deal with not feeling well physically and not having it take an extreme mental health toll. So the combination of those really, I I dropped out of the training the first time around. And then uh, the following season, they had two other trainings. One of them was a residential training that I knew would be best for me because it was two weeks away. And uh, you know, you go to, you go to the coursework, uh, from like eight to four, and then you have homework at night. And I knew that would be great. And the thing is like, I got put on the waiting list, like first on the waiting list, because it was for people who weren't really in Metro Boston, who wouldn't have been able to easily go to, um, a training. Like, uh, so, and that's, 
I feel that that's fair. That's the reason that they put me on the waiting list. Sure. But, um, and then I, you know, and I got a call like a week before it started, they're like, do you still want to do this? I'm like, yes, 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 I do. So I went and, um, you know, I did the two weeks training and I'd already had a lot of this experience working in different, uh, supportive environments. And, uh, I, I took the exam and got certified and I have to say that training, um, not only, uh, really helped to give me tools and skills to um, share with other people, but it really helped me for myself. Like part of it was about um, learning new skills and coping and boundaries for yourself. Mm. Uh, So there's that. (laughs) And then I, you know, I went and I worked with Boston medical um, at their peer resource centers. Uh, I worked with um, a community organization that works with, uh, both developmentally disabled and people with mental health issues. I worked there for a while. Um, I feel like I worked somewhere else, mm-hmm. but now I'm out here in California. So <laughs> that's, that's, um, it's been kind of a journey. And, you know, I think that um, sharing my experience of being autistic with the people in Massachusetts was ultimately really supportive and it helped me figure out that people really don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. People don't have any context for it. Um, and also with OCD to a certain extent, people don't understand what that's like internally. And I think helping to get people to understand that internally is really important. Um, and, you know, I, I was able to find avenues to do that and uh, I'm still kind of doing it. I did, um, this is my brave in September, which um, I'm sure like a lot of people know at this point because my husband proposed to me there. Um, and, you know, doing that was pretty amazing because it, it was really the first time that I like just publicly to, to random strangers said like, I'm autistic and this is the deal with that. Hmm. And it was very, very empowering. And I, I want people to, to understand those things. <laughs> So I'm constantly looking for ways to do the peer specialist thing. Uh, I actually just recently left my job. Um, I was working with a program trying to um, basically establish evidence for combining behavioral health care and primary care using peer support. Um, I helped them kind of establish how to like what data to get and questions to ask and things like that. But ultimately it wasn't something I felt comfortable doing anymore because of the the direction that the project was taking. And so I kind of had to leave and it was, it was really hard. Mm. <laughs> um, what can you help me and the listeners understand a little bit about what the people you work with at, like as a peer specialist, the people you work with, what are they getting out of it? Is it, is it, are you sort of like a middle person to, you know, the sort of, you know, big medical, sort of facility and their care? Like, is it like a middle to that as you like providing education and, and sort of comfort and support? Like how, what are they getting out of it? Like specifically? Um, so the thing is like, uh, so peer support can exist on its own, like not connected to a facility or organization or, or larger system of care okay. for an individual. Um, or it can be part of an organization embedded in an organization and peer support is not, it's not 
intended to replace anything. So it is intended to be kind of another spoke in the wheel of support and navigation that people can can take advantage of. And, you know, sometimes I, I do end up being kind of a middleman, like sort of, uh, you know, conveying things. Middle woman. Man, short for human, middle woman, <laughs> whatever. Um, a middle person, um, <laughs> a go-between, um, because that's what the person I'm supporting wants, not uh-huh. because the providers ask for that. Um, I ultimately always align with what the person I'm supporting wants. So, but having somebody who just says that, who says, I do not have, I do not try to have control over you. I cannot have any say in what you do gives people, um, like this weird permission to actually take those initiatives to say, well, this is actually what I want in my treatment. And these are my goals or like, I don't want any treatment, but this is a goal. Like, and it's not prescriptive, it's supportive. So if a person wants to get it back into, say, any community they want, they want to go bowling, they want to go back to school, they want to be able to go down to the coffee shop once a week like they used to, um, we support them in doing that by meaning, like, I will share my experiences if they align. Mm. And I will, you know, sit with them and ask them what they want and kind of, I don't want to say guide because that's not really I I mean I guess I guess I just kind of support people doing what they think is ultimately best for them and that's the principle and and you know doing that in a way that's as mutual as possible and if you know if people need need tools need skills things like that we will look for them we will find them we'll practice them together um and it's really, and, and I've definitely seen it change people in that they feel like they finally have a voice, which is just, it's one quote unquote small thing, but it is phenomenal in its power. Yeah. And like, I've experienced that too, you know, having people who are just like, no, what do you want to do is just such a game changer. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. Like it's such a, I mean, mental health aside, like it's such a huge thing just in life to be heard and to Mm -hmm. be asked that question because oftentimes it's hard to ask ourselves that question, you know, Mm because it almost feels like inherently selfish or something. Like we have this human condition guilt, you know, thrust Mm -hmm. upon us. And I think it's just such a beautiful thing, this peer support idea, because you're really being a mirror to these people and allowing them to to ask those questions. And you're kind of there to to listen, to to not to guide, as you said, but just to just to listen and kind of mm-hmm. is would you say that peer support person is kind of a allows others to develop their own sense of self? I don't, you know, I think I wouldn't say that. I would say it it definitely gives people more space to figure out what they want Mm. than a lot of other modes of support or navigation or whatever you want to call them. You know, I think it's, it's weird because so many people are not actually asked what they want to do or like so you're, you're in treatment, you're going to support groups. What do you want after that? You know? And, um, I think it definitely 
gives people space and support without judging what is an appropriate goal or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's ideally. Uh, unfortunately, having, you know, sometimes having peer specialists embedded in organizations, there's a lot we have to struggle against to maintain that space. Um, and to, you know, so really giving people space to figure out what they want, what they want in life, what they want this week, what they want next month. And if they, if they want assistance and support in pursuing any of those goals, then it's valid, you know, and, and just knowing that and having that, uh, that confirmation is incredible. And also, you know, some of the other things I do is, is, you know, I'll, I'll educate people about, about quote unquote recovery, but I really call it quality of life, improved quality of life. (laughs) Um, so I'll talk to people about that. I'll share my experience as a way to, um, combat stigma as a way to inform and educate. I'll also talk about, and for me personally, I also talk about things like accessibility and communication. Like, are we really addressing those things in a broader sense, Mm -hmm. which, you know, people get into situations where, um, their provider will, will list them as non-compliant and say that they're combative. And it's like, really, they're just not sure how you expect them to communicate. And right. you're not seeing what they're actually throwing out. You're just seeing it through a lens. So, and I do have those conversations with clinicians and they're interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you like, is this, is this what the future looks like? More sort of peer support, peer specialists in the world? Do you see it going that way? Do you have any line of sight to that? Well, I mean, there, so there really are peer specialists internationally, like in different countries. Um, but I, I think that, I think that <laughs> um, my feeling is that perhaps there will be more of a split between uh, one type of peer specialist and the other. And actually, um, having, so the split will be, there's a peer specialist with mutuality and then there's a provider with open lived experience. And I think that the emphasis on shared experiences on personal direction and voice and choice is here to stay. How that might actually look like in terms of supportive roles, things like that. I'm not sure. I do think that there will, will from now on, be a position like peer specialists. And I'm really, really hoping that more and more providers are supported in sharing their personal experience and not letting that boundary of, of um, preservation actually get in the way of care and treatment and support, which I feel happens sometimes with clinicians, to be honest. Yeah. Would you like, would you say that, I mean, <clears throat> here's where I'm getting at. Like, okay. I, I have lots going on in my brain. Sorry, I'm getting distracted <laughs> by <okay>. it all. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, you've had training in this area mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. experience. But wouldn't you say that we all need to be sort of peer support to all humans <laughs> in yeah, all things? So I, I, yeah, so I mean, there's... Um, there. So there's this, there's this idea for people who aren't familiar with peer support specialists that like, does anybody can offer peer support? And that's true. Anyone can offer peer support. And I feel like in relationships in general, offering a sense of mutuality, offering a sense of, of, um, 
honoring people's agency and choice. Like, even if you don't agree with it, like, how can I support you? Um, is kind of the way to go in relationships in, in life in general. 100%. Um, yeah. So, but you know, the, the, the peer support specialist or certified peer peer specialist um, is really, you know, we also have had actual like training and how to cope ourselves with boundaries that need to happen, um, how to look at our own experience and, and utilize that in supporting people without it being prescriptive. Yeah. Um, so we practice that, you know, we, we also talk about like different kinds of frameworks to look at things, uh, different ways to, um, encourage motivation. If people, if people express like, I'm not motivated and I don't know what to do about it. So things like that, like, you know, there's, there's different tools and different coping skills. And also part of the, the peer specialist, the certified peer specialist, um, role is to educate in general and to kind of, um, like improve the system basically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, kind of get in there and, and fuck shit up. <laughs> <laughs> not, not in like a bad way though. Not like, like I'm just being destructive, but like, you know, rattle some cages and yeah. really tell people like, maybe this isn't the way that we should be doing things. Oh my gosh. Like, it is so important. You know, yeah. And that's, and that's really, that is a huge part of the role. It's, it's not, you know, it's just, it's not just on the individual level. It's also systemic. So and that's actually why they're why it can be such a challenging role. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just think about the 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 pain and suffering and atrocities that have happened just by the mere fact that someone said uh, or acceptance of the fact that uh, oh, we just that's just how we've always done it. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Well, I think it's so it's so amazing that you work in that field, and I think it's so admirable, and I I, I applaud you for for that work. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know I I feel like the just the balance I've I've found with it just in in how I conduct the role is really I feel like it's what I need to be doing, and I feel like it's it's using the talents and, and knowledge I have to the best end. So not like not everyone should be a peer specialist because that's not that's not where they would benefit or where the the system would benefit the most, you know. Like like my husband is a public speaker and like that's that's what he's good at. I'm not great at that. I'm not great at like a lot of the things that he does. Yeah. And in a I just want to bring up this idea that like pretty much anyone can be an advocate. Like you can use any talent you have <laughs> to advocate and to support and educate. So even if you think like, well, I can only type, <laughs> you can tell a story. You can help someone else get their story out. Somebody who can't type, you know, just on that level even. So, yeah, no, that's, that's beautifully said. I, I really like that perspective. Well, uh, Joelle, let's, let's transition into empathy heroes. How does that sound? <laughs> Um, this is the part of the show where we talk about, I'll go first, give you a moment, okay. talk about empathy heroes. These are people in our lives, real or imagined even, uh, fictional, uh, you know, authors of the past, etc. I will go first to name my empathy hero. My empathy hero this week is 
John Updike, who's an American author, and uh, this is a quote from his book, Brazil. He says, quote, We are fated to love one another. We hardly exist outside our love. We are just animals without it, with a birth and a death and constant fear between. Our love has lifted us up out of the dreadfulness of merely living. End quote. I love that. I, I, I've been thinking, you know, this is the week that we're recording this is, is Valentine's week. Uh, it's not something I really celebrate, but I, I think uh, it always sort of spurs this thoughts about what love is and how love can be different for each of us, but how love is such a, a moving, powerful component of our, of our human existence. And, and John, John Updike, who's a brilliant writer, uh, said it very well here. So, right. No, I yeah. agree. Yeah. How about you? Did you, uh, <laughs> do you have an empathy hero you want to share? Um, yeah, it's hard to like narrow it down, to be honest. Um, so, I mean, you can name as many as you'd like. Really? Okay. Then I have three. <laughs> do it. So, um, I obviously want to say like my husband, Rudy, Rudy Caceres, um, He's been phenomenal and me moving here and really like kind of helping me deal with a lot of the adjustments that come with that and, and kind of helping me sort out, uh, you know, the frustration tolerance thing. He is just um, like endlessly supportive and understanding and he, he reciprocates the effort that I put in absolutely. And he is constantly, if he doesn't understand asking to understand, and that is incredibly important aspect of empathy yeah absolutely like wanting to understand um i also honestly want to say my dog anime <laughs> because she is she is just like she is an incredible incredible puppy and it it makes me it, i mean it makes me happy that we got her but it makes me sad that you know there's probably so many puppies like her that people are just saying are are basically too crazy, too rambunctious, whatever. Yeah. Um, she is really, really sensitive to what is going on with us, what is going on with me. If I'm upset lying in bed, she'll come in and just put her head on my chest, which is not characteristic of her. Like this calm, <laughs> this calm, soothing attitude is not characteristic of her. She's a very active, joyful puppy. Um, and, you know, I just, she's a little awkward with other doggies. <laughs> in that you know it just it, it takes her a minute to figure out who likes her who doesn't um but she is she's very very sensitive to both of us yeah and she's a great companion animal my third is um this woman called charity bell she is a um she's a speaker and a presenter on i guess um compassion and communication as well as other things uh you know and i saw her at the John F. Kennedy Forum in Massachusetts, uh, I want to say three or four years ago. And she spoke on basically like conflict. And she talked about how to like reduce immediate conflict anywhere, like within conversations, or she even used the example of, you know, somebody taking the last creamer in the coffee line, like monsters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like your instant, your instant response how big or small it is is just be like oh my god and like you know flare out and be like what are you doing yeah um and she really talks about dealing with that about dealing with that you know that um immediate like 
uh, old brain response mm-hmm. of fight and and in a very human way. And she talks a lot about about her journey of, of being more compassionate to herself. Um, and she's just fantastic. Like, I, I would just love to see her speak all the time because she oh. speaks from very, from like kind of a point of view that takes into account like how your brain is responding just instinctively. And mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, she so sounds you can, amazing. I, I think you can find her relentless positivity if you search that and charity bell. Okay. And yeah. like I'm saying, like people definitely go see her, read her. <laughs> yeah. I'll make sure to link yeah. her stuff in the, in the show notes. Listeners. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Like she's, she's just like that speech, that talk that I saw was like really impactful for me. It's very informative about how I like, respond to things immediately and extremely lovely i love that yeah well thanks for sharing those empathy heroes uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and where can listeners connect with you joelle um so i uh, i mean uh, <laughs> like i have social media but i'm not a social media person <laughs> yeah. but um so i am on instagram just give us your address yeah. <laughs> Instagram, I think it's underscore Joelle Marie underscore. I just, I see, I even have to make sure. Um, sorry. Okay. No, yeah. Don't be sorry. Underscore J O E L L E M A R I E underscore. And that's Instagram. And then on Facebook, I mean, you can just search Joelle Marie, J O E L L E space M A R I E. And you'll find me on Facebook pretty much. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so, so much for being on Yumi Empathy, Joel. I, I really appreciate your insight and your experience. And I, I love the work that you're doing. And I'm just happy to know you. Yeah, thank you very much. I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Okay, thanks, Noan. Well, to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh.